Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to Live is back with another podcast interview. Just like many of our other interviews, we get ideas for who to interview from references from past interviewees. Today's guest came as a recommendation from Neely Spence Gracie, who we interviewed a few months back about her running career and also her career as a running coach. One of the questions we ask everybody that we interview is, who do you think would make a good Moving to Live interview? And Neely suggested Roger White. And if you recall some of the past conversations that I've had on Moving to Live, Dean Somerset talked about knowledge silos and how people who specialize in one thing never hear about other people. So I got on the internet and looked up Roger and realized that not only is he a massage therapist, but he also is the co-owner and producer of a World Endurance Summit about endurance running. And when I looked a little more, I realized that he would be a perfect person to give us a little knowledge base on movement. And he really fits the ethos of moving to live movement. It's part of what makes your life complete. Roger, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your busy morning to talk to moving to live. Hey, Ben. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today. The question that I always like to ask first when we get people on moving to live is if you see somebody in the grocery store and you're wearing a t-shirt with your business name on it, or you meet somebody and they say, what do you do? What's your 30 or 45 second definition of this is what Roger White does professionally? Uh, <laughs> I'm laughing. It depends on, uh, I don't know. Cause I do a lot of stuff. I wear different hats. I, I teach math during the, the day. That's my, my main, uh, income earner and it gives me some opportunities, uh, to do things. So that's, that's, that's the main thing. If I want to go into a deep tangent, uh, I'll talk about my therapy background, uh, that I, I currently do in addition to teaching. Um, so those are the, the two big ones. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't want to sound too crazy or too weird or too different. So sometimes I'll just stay on a teacher and, and leave it at that just to keep it simple. 
I would imagine also though, as a massage therapist, a large part of your work is actually teaching too and instructing your clients what to do, what not to do to make your job easier or to make the massages easier on them. Uh, yeah, you know, interestingly, my uh, practice has changed, uh, over time. You know, I, uh, without kind of going through the whole story and how I did it now, I, I mainly see people who are really hurt and banged up. So the, it becomes, you know, from a normal maintenance massage into trying to fix them in one session kind of thing. Cause they need to get out and, and compete. And I mainly see competitive athletes. I don't keep a, uh, a very large client list. Uh, so, you know, I have a time available for those that I treat. Um, so it's a little bit different. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm problem solving with them usually where we're trying to figure out what, what occurred, what, how the injury happens and then try to come up with some strategies that might work for them to kind of, you know, some self-care type things or, or, uh, you know, some routines that come up that might help them to get, get over the particular injury they're in. So like later today, I have a runner coming over that has a, you know, a, a plantar fascia issue going on, whether it's plantar fascia, or not, I don't know if that's what she's saying. So, um, you know, so we'll come in, we'll do some work on it and then try to come up with some strategies on, you know, what the cause might be based on what I'm seeing from her and then what some things she can implement in her training plan. So that's typically what happens when they come over. So yeah, so there's, there's definitely a little bit of education in there for sure. And I want to really delve into that a little bit deeper about why you chose to work with competitive people in the second part of our interview. But what I'm interested first in, and to me, one of the most interesting things about moving to live is we get to find out the stories of people because you didn't just wake up one day and say, well, I'm going to teach math and I'm going to do massage with competitive runners on the side, and that's going to allow me to do what I want to do. So growing up, where did you grow up and were you an active kid playing a variety of sports or did you discover activity? and things like that when you were older yeah i was uh, actually born in the bay area of california just outside of oakland um people have seen the movie coach carter uh that's the town i was born in it was actually richmond california and then my family moved to detroit when i was five my dad took a job with the auto industry so you want a job in the auto industry you come to detroit so we ended up you know uh, hiking across the country here and that's where i pretty much grew up um you know, my mom still lives in the same house we bought, you know, 30 something years ago. And, uh, and so, yeah, I grew up there. Um, my, my dad was very active. We, we played a lot of sports outside, you know, we were like the, the go-to house in the neighborhood to play everything. I mean, basketball, football, we'd make up games. Uh, we'd have 20, 30 kids in my driveway, you know, most days I don't even know who half the kids were. They just knew like there were a bunch of kids over. Um, and so that was kind of my, my, my upbringing. I played a lot of sports as a kid. Um, I think I started playing soccer at five or six. I played flag football for five years until I was about 12. And then I played tackle football uh, from then on. Um, I played basketball quite a bit. I got into some travel basketball for a while. Um, I was pretty uh, competitive at a high level in track and field. Um, I did some baseball. I don't know if I said that. I played some golf. I played some tennis with my dad recreationally. So, you know, I did a lot of different things as a kid. I, I love sports. It was my life. I was a statistics junkie. Like for a long time, I could tell you, you know, free throw percents of every NBA player. And like, I knew, knew all the numbers. I was just fanatical about it, which, which probably makes sense that I'm, uh, you know, a math teacher. I'm a little bit of a numbers guy and, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And, uh, so it was, it was fun when I was about, I don't know, 12 or 13. I mean, I was pretty fast as a kid. I, you know, comparatively to others, uh, actually when I was nine, yeah, when I was nine years old, 
Uh, I qualified for the Hershey meet, uh, kind of your way, uh, the national track and field meet I was selected. So I, at nine years old, I went and ran the 50 meters or 55 meters there at the Hershey meet at nine. So that was pretty interesting. I had a, a trip away from my parents for three days at nine years old. It was, it was quite an experience. Um, so, but I, I, I realized I was pretty quick and I had this like addiction to get faster actually. And so I just said, Hey mom, I want to buy a parachute. Hey mom, I want this video set. And you know, and they send you the parachute and it comes with a catalog of all their stuff. Right. And so, so, and my mom's like, all right, you know, and I'd use it. So like, you know, I could have got video games. She was buying me parachutes. So it, it, that was just the kind of kid I was, I, you know, it, here in Michigan, of course we get winter and weather and I would, in, during winter time is basketball, but I didn't always have access to an indoor gym. So I'd go out and shoot and, uh, you know, the ball wouldn't bounce. And I always think back, if you ever seen the movie Hoosiers, uh, there was that scene in the movie where I, I think it was Jimmy uh, was shooting the ball outside and the ball wouldn't bounce. And that was pretty much me outside in the winter. And I would bank the snow under the basket. So when I shot it, it would go in and then roll right back to me. So I didn't have to move. I could just, it would just rebound it right back. And, you know, so that, that was kind of my, my upbringing. I was a different kid. I would dress up in football pads that they used to sell as like this Huffy set. Used to have like the shoulder pads and helmet of the different sports teams. And I would jump over the couch pretending I was Walter Payton and, and that kind of thing, like, you know, going over into the end zone. So this, <laughs> that was, that was pretty much me is, you know, sports for my life. Um, yeah, I played different sports in high school about age 15, 16, uh, realized I played a lot of basketball and realized that sport was passing me up pretty quickly. I wasn't putting in the time I needed to, to stay, you know, at a high level. And I started to stop growing too. So, uh, that didn't help. I'm only about five, eight. Um, and so I kind of was like, yeah, maybe this isn't good. And, and, and started putting more focus on track and field and running. Uh, you know, and so I became pretty much a two sport athlete in high school with football and track. And then eventually got a football scholarship, uh, to play at a division two school here in Detroit called Wayne state. Um, so that's kind of the, the long story, but yeah, sports has pretty much been my life since I can remember. What I think is interesting about that is you've just described somebody who, whether consciously or subconsciously, is following the model that the NSCA has been promoting. And we had a guest on earlier, uh, Rick Howard, who's one of the authors of their long-term athletic development model. And by that, what I mean is what you just described after over the last four or five minutes is a variety of movement activities, a variety of sports. And from what you said, you didn't really pick or specialize in one or two sports until you were 14 or 15. And I know a few weeks ago, we had Don Moxley on here, and he made a comment. He really didn't think anybody should start specializing in a sport till high school. So what was the impetus behind doing all these activities and not specializing, for example, in track and field? Because... I think many parents and many kids today, if they're nine years old and they qualify for a meet like the Hershey meet that you described, they're going to say, okay, I'm a track and field athlete. Forget soccer, forget baseball, forget basketball. I'm going to be a track and field athlete. So what made you continue to experience and participate in a variety of sports from what sounds like at a fairly high level through high school when you decided to just specialize in football and track? Yeah. You know, uh, this is interesting because later on in my, my life, I eventually had a sports training center and I coached high school kids. And the I think the biggest difference between, say, now and when I was a kid uh, is the amount of opportunity today for kids to play club and travel and so on. And, 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 and it's good, but it's also bad. So the, I'll backtrack. When I was a kid, 
I mean, I, you know, I'm 36. So, you know, I grew up in pretty much the nineties. That was my, my childhood decade. And, you know, like, for example, I remember at 12 years old, I heard about AAU basketball. And at the time, I think there were only eight teams in the entire state of Michigan that played AAU. And so if you were on an AAU basketball team, you were good because there weren't that many teams. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, and so I was like, you know, I like basketball. I like to play. I like I like doing things by myself. I'm, I'm kind of more of a loner type personality. Um, so basketball suited me well because I could go shoot and dribble and do all the stuff myself. And so I spent some time on it and, you know, I like playing. And, and so I found some teams that worked and, you know, it was, it was good. Uh, some, and what ended up happening about the time I started to play AAU basketball was there was an explosion of teams in Michigan where kids would get cut from teams. And then we noticed they would start a B team and a C team of a club. You know, they would just find someone to coach it. And, and also now there's, there's, it, it became very diluted. Um, and, and that was, that was pretty interesting to see now what has happened because now, you know, youth sports by itself as a travel, you know, people make full-time incomes off of being a youth sports coach here in, in the United States and some sports. Um, and I think that's, it's pretty unfortunate because there's money to be made and, you know, kids feel the need that they have to, to do this stuff. Um, even as, you know, a former college football player, this is about the time when combines just started. Nike had did like three regional combines. Um, my junior year after my junior year, that was like the first year they did it. And, uh, now it's, it's crazy. They have, you know, winter seven on seven camps and things like this. And, um, it's, you know, the opportunities are there. If you have space, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll do it and there's money to be made. Right. So, you know, um, and it's a challenge now I'm, I have three kids, one's eight, one's six and one's uh, three. So, you know, how, how do I, navigate that i want them to enjoy sports right that's the biggest thing whether they go to college or professionals it's irrelevant at this point i just want them to enjoy life and and get experiences because if it weren't for athletics i wouldn't have had nearly the experiences i did in life right and that's that's the truth you know i had two degrees paid for as a result of playing uh, sports and i think that's some of the motivation for today's parents um, you know, like they want to put their kids in these travel teams for that potential scholarship. But I think what they're missing, and this is what I realized later on when I would coach high school track and field, um, you know, I would take my best one or two kids that year and get them recruited pretty, pretty highly and, and get some significant money. Um, but you know, they had to have talent too. Right. And that was the thing. And, and this became, um, uh, interesting for me because, you know, on one end, I do believe you need to play you know, and do multiple things. But at some point you need to make a commitment, uh, especially when something's technical. Like I had a, uh, you know, particular runner one year who wanted to play other sports and, but they really need additional time. And so then the decision is, do you let them do both at the same time or not? And, uh, you know, I'm like, no, it's one or, or, or the other. It's not both. I'm not doing that only because I, I, I feel like I have enough background and, and knowledge to know, you're going to overdo it and eventually get hurt. And then we're going to end up, you know, in a different situation altogether. So I'd rather you just stay away from me. And I took, I took a lot of flack for it from people like, no, let them do it. I go, no, like if they want to play basketball, let them play basketball, you know, that kind of thing. And, And I see that when at my training facility, when I had it, you know, kids would come see me, they were playing two and three sports at the same time because of the travel teams. And so that's, 
that that environment, that culture is just it's got to change. Something something's got to change. I, and I don't know what it is, um, but it's it's very it's moving very quickly. I remember in like 2005, I think it was there was a statistic that you know you youth sports training brought in like a billion dollars a year, and 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 that was. You know, and so when I started my, my center, I was running speed clinics um, and I was one of the only few people in Metro Detroit that did it. And then after a couple of years, it was crazy. Like everyone, you know, any dad with a car and cones would set up one at school. <laughs> and and I was like, all right, it's time. You know, I got to, you know, I had a friend of mine say, you know, if you just change the game. Don't, you know, if you can't, you know, the way the game's being played, just change it so that it fits. And, and having that mindset, uh, you know, philosophically did help, you know, I, I said, okay, fine. You know, and I ended up changing the game where I focused on female athletes who were going to college that needed to learn how to, to strength train, you know, everyone wanted to spend time on football players and that's great. And I had, to, I mean, I got to deal with the football player itself, the, the coach and their ego. And it was a pain, even being a former player. I didn't want to deal with them. There was, I would turn football players away left and right, like high level recruited kids if they didn't fit the criteria that I wanted for my my training center. So, um, yeah. Uh, so I focused on on females. So that's how I ended up changing the game. And I started with one girl, and I said, "Look, we're going to do th- some things different." And the next year, I had twenty two girls training, <laughs> all going to college. And so I became the the training thing. And, 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 but then I realized that ended very quickly after their second year of college, they stayed on campus and they didn't come home for the summer. So that, uh, it, it worked out great. I just had a bad time, hard time getting people in after that first bulk. But yeah, so that, anyway, that's, uh, kind of some things on, on youth sports and it, it's, yeah, it, it's crazy. I, you know, my own kids, I, my youngest, they've, they've dabbled in gymnastics a little bit. We just spent a couple months doing Taekwondo. Um, you know, we, I have pull up bars in the house. We do that. We have a trampoline in the backyard and, you know, we'll, we have all the balls in the, in the garage. We'll go out and play, like just throw them and I'll set up mini hurdles and we'll just run over them or play games or they race each other over them and just keeping it fun and, um, and, and just getting exposure to things and, and just do different things. You know, when I coach track, I'd have my medicine balls out and whatever, and they would just play while I would coach. I did almost as toys for them. And, and so I just want to, to expose them to that. And, you know, you got these like videos I sh- you see on social media, the five-year-old kid dribbling like three basketballs at the same time and blindfolded, right? And, and you're, I'm wondering like what's going to end up happening with that kid. Um, you know, they're probably going to get burned out or depressed and go through some, some things like that over time. And, you know, the pressure that is a result of it. Um, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's kind of sad in a way, like you can, you can specialize a kid really early, but I, I just don't see it happening. Um, as you know, you're going to be like the Todd Marinovich, right. And mm-hmm. you know, some of some of the listeners out there will know who that is. Some won't have any idea. You know, it's the dad that like trained his kid, like, you know, at a young age and did all this stuff and, you know, and, and you see the results of it. Yeah. He got to the NFL, but he ended up with all kinds of other other problems and I think substance abuse and his career was never what, what you thought. So, um, you know, it's, there's a bit of luck, a bit of circumstance, uh, you know, definitely skill is involved. Um, and I think you have to be able to navigate, uh, the different hurdles and obstacles you, you have as a youth sport type thing, you know, like, uh, just, just uh, trying to figure out how to sign my kids up for soccer, you know, and, and considering I, I worked in that area training kids, you know, I know, the clubs, I know the teams, I know how it works. I know, 
I'm, I'm very well versed in it. And so it's like, all right, I know what they're going to do here, here, here. You know, do I really want to travel 30 minutes across town for a practice at this age right now? You know, and those are the things I, I'm deciding. I know there's people that would do it. They would drive an hour each way, two, three days a week to get their kid to soccer practice to be on a certain team. So, um, you know, and at this age, I'm like, ah, oh, no, it's not, not really worth it. It's not that important. I think um, it's interesting. You were commenting a few minutes ago about when you were playing basketball, there were, I think you said eight AAU teams in Michigan. And that if somebody was on an AAU team, you knew it was good. I spend a fair amount of time on YouTube and the internet, just looking for ideas and, and thinking, because if you critically look at it, there's a lot of good information out there. And one of the things I found over the past four or five months are a variety of interviews from uh, Gina Oriema, the University mm -hmm. of Connecticut women's coach. And I forget what it was, and I'm probably misquoting him slightly, but his comment was it used to be you could go to an AAU tournament and see all the big names that you were interested in recruiting and know that they were going to be playing against good competition. And now with the proliferation of AAU teams, you really have to pick and choose because you could end up going to a tournament and not a single player in that tournament is at the level that they need to be to be recruited at, at a school like mm -hmm. University of Connecticut or other Division One school. And I think you hit the nail on the head. It's the proliferation. If you've got the money to pay and you can convince somebody to take some money to get paid to coach and pick up some sponsors, you can have a travel team, whether it's soccer or basketball or baseball or softball. Yeah, you know, and I think part of it is parent pride. <laughs> Honestly, I... I, uh, I see it on Facebook and, um, I don't know, maybe some parent friend of mine will, will hear this, but I, I mean, I'm not calling anyone out, but, and I've been there too, you know, like, Hey, my kids a couple weeks ago got tested in their belts and got a yellow and a green belt. You know, definitely I'm a, I'm a, I'm a proud dad, but that's, I'm not going to trophy my kid around and, and be like, Oh, look at my kid. They're so great. And, you know, a lot of it is sharing for, for my family, some friends, um, and, and it's pretty cool. Like not a lot of kids do Taekwondo either, which is, which is pretty neat to me. Um, that I, you know, that they found a liking to it. Um, well, if, if I'm correct in my knowledge too, in order to get a belt, you have to earn it. It's not one of those things that just because you go to three or four practices a week, you're automatically going to get the belt. You have to master certain skills. Right. Exactly. You know, and, uh, the, the teacher they had is phenomenal. She's old school. Like, you know, you can't come in the building any earlier than 10 minutes before. So like, you know, at 10 minutes before you can enter at 11 minutes before she'll throw you back out. Like she, you know, she's very strict and disciplined and, and that's what these kids need as a teacher. I teach ninth grade. Uh, it, this is exactly what I'm seeing. Kids don't have now is discipline and delayed gratification, that type of thing. But yeah, you know, the, um, uh, the, the different things they get from it is, is, is huge. Um, but yeah, you know, the parents, uh, like as a status symbol, oh, my kid plays for this team, right? And they put the stickers on the cars and all that stuff. And it's like, oh, you know, like there was a team in here in town, a soccer club, and there's a couple of them that had some status. Like if you played for that club, you were good. But now they have, you know, ABC, East and West. And now it's like, oh, you play for the, the that team, but that's like not the good team for it, right? And so you, you even see this with the parents. And I think that's that's part of it too. I don't want to, you know, I, I hope my intentions with my, my own kids are good where, um, you know, it's, it's because they want to do it. Um, you know, and, and I want to encourage them to do it, but not force them as well. And that, that's the biggest challenge I have as a parent with, with youth sports, you know, is I don't want them to be afraid and then they're, they're terrified and never want to do it again. 
um, because I was that way too. In fact, I, at nine years old, uh, had heard all my friends were playing tackle football. And so my mom signed me up for tackle football and I went like the first few days and I hated it. I came home crying and she's like, it's all right, we'll put you in flag. And, and so I went back to flag and I, I did that for five full years. And I, I remember this cause this was the, probably the best thing, you know, and, and here's the thing. There were kids playing tackle football, right. At nine years old that never probably even played football in high school. Honestly, maybe they got burned out or, you know, they never, they never, um, uh, became anything really. Uh, so at 12, you know, I signed up and they go, they were, the coaches in a way were making fun of me cause I came from flag football, but here's what, what was the benefit of that? As I was a, like a running back, you know, I get the ball and run around, um, being a flag football player, you had to have moves to not get your flags taken. You couldn't just run people over. And so by playing flag football for five years, it developed a lot of different moves. Um, it gave me the ability to kind of in football, like break down on someone to be able to, you know, to develop the skills before I would tackle them to actually be in position. And so that was actually developmentally probably the one of the best things I could have ever done. Um, and, and in the end, then the coaches had a different uh, idea on, uh, on flag football after seeing that result. They just, I don't think they had a player who had come through, uh, you know, that had some decent speed that had the skill sets developed. Um, to transition into tackle. So, and I'm um, curious as somebody who started his career as an athletic trainer, since you played flag football, you didn't have as much or as many collisions. I'm sure there were some collisions. How old were you then when you got your first concussion? Since I know with, uh, with, uh, contact football, you know, there's kids nine or 10 years old and they have their first concussion then. Uh, good question. I don't know. I mean, you know, you know, those that play football know you get, hit and it's like a car accident if you've ever been in a car accident um and it's just the smashing of the head right i i didn't really get knocked out one time in high school i think i got clobbered pretty hard um that i can recall i mean i might have had some minor ones but nothing nothing crazy um but the one time i was running a route as a receiver and got hit going across the middle so it was textbook concussion uh set up there right um and it wasn't again until i think um, in college, it was the same thing. I was going across the middle in practice and a, a friend of all things decided to just lay me out. And, uh, yeah, I blacked out for a second. So that was, those are the only two things being a skill player. I didn't get the impact that some other positions do. So for that, I'm actually pretty grateful. And, um, cause I know some friends that would just get, you know, their helmets would get worn out from getting hit so much in practice and in games. And so, it, you know, it's, yeah, and, you know, I, I even say for my own son, I don't even know if I want him playing uh, football. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of see what happens. He's he's like a ultimate fighting natural kid. Like he takes his sisters out and like grabs their legs, shoots the legs and rolls them and stuff. And I, I don't even know where the kid learned this from. He's like, he's kind of like, oh man, maybe he's going to be an ultimate fighter. Maybe football isn't a bad idea. So, you know, um so yeah, we'll just kind of see, but that, yeah, that was my concussion, uh, history. I, I was actually pretty lucky. I don't think I got as many, uh, head injuries that some other people may have had. And I know soccer has now said with you, soccer, no heading of the ball until 12 or 13. So it sounds like consciously or, or subconsciously pun intended by playing flag football, you saved yourself a significant amount of wear and tear and potential injury. No, absolutely. No, and I know they've they've changed some. I've seen different flag uh, leagues, and I think the league I played in has even changed. 
we actually had a real helmet and knee pads. That was all we had. And we had to wear a cup. Um, and now I think they have a soft helmet. And so they're trying to minimize that head to head. Uh, you know, when you have a helmet, you like, we would get hit in the shoulder with the face mask and at nine, 10 years old, man, that hurts, <laughs> you know, like it, it hurts when you have pads on, you know, and, and so you're getting hit in the collarbone all the time and stuff. And you'd always have that bigger kid, even though it was weight limited, uh, football, that kid would still be bigger and like just hit someone and like hurt them, you know? Um, so yeah, I think I definitely it's, you can't do the whole old school. This is what we used to do, but I think that some of that old school we used to do needs to come back as well. I, it's just not everything, right? I think we have to kind of take the bad of it and get rid of it and keep the good. I th- and I think, I think the discipline you're describing with your kids and the, uh, Taekwondo teacher is probably something that needs to come back. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, the, the respect, uh, you know, it's yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, you know, no, sir, no ma'am in that, in the, in the, in the dojang. And, um, yeah, just don't see it, you know, just being courtesy, you know, courteous and courtesy to others and, and that type of thing. They have five tenants of Taekwondo and they recite them at the end of every class. And it was actually good because I could go home and when my, my kids were struggling, I could go back and say, Hey, remember when you talked about this, that class, this is what it really means. Cause they would say them, but you know, they're six and eight. They don't really understand what courteous means, mm-hmm. you know? And so to, to relate back and say, Hey, when you hit your sister, is that being courteous? You know, like, uh, no. Okay. Would you want her to hit you? No. Okay. This is what they're talking about. So, um, things like that, you know, one of my daughters has self-control issues. And so that's one of the tenants. And so to talk about that, Hey, we need to self-control, um, and in a way, too, I'd say, hey, we'll go talk to Master Trudeau and we're going to tell her that your self-control at home is not good. And they're like, no, 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 don't tell her, don't tell her. And so we, we kind of, yeah, I don't know if that's good parenting or not, but it seemed to work temporarily when we needed it to. So, um, but yeah, it's good things to reference and that they're getting something out of it. You know, I, uh, for, for myself, probably the the one thing I can look back on as an athlete when I, when I made the jump to, to commit to a college team, when I signed my letter of intent, I sat down and, and at the time I had talked about, you know, I, I, I was doing my own training plans. I, w- I was figuring it out. I'd, I'd find stuff online, what athletes were doing and copy it and do it myself. And I had strength shoes. If you remember those things, I, I remember those. Yeah. So I would do that. And I mean, I had everything like kids just know I had everything. I had my own coaches would ask me for workouts at like 12 years old and stuff. Like, what should you do? Um, and uh, so I sat down and did this plan and I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to commit to this and just go. And I, I did. I showed up to camp as a freshman. was one of the fastest guys there. I was one of the most fit. I was un- unbelievable, like how everything fit together. Really turned heads. We ran 40s the first day and the coach turned and my coach actually didn't recruit me, recruited me. He was hired after I had signed my letter of intent. So he didn't even know who I was. I was just the name on a board and I'm small. I was only five, 750 pounds, five, eight. Um, but I could, I could run. I mean, I ran a hundred under 11 seconds and this particular day on grass and he came from an NFL background and I had run, uh, like a four five forty on grass. Um, so he's like, wow, who's, who's this guy? And so that, that turned some heads and, but I look back and, you know, I ran in the snow and in the cold and I stuck to the plan and, and, and that work ethic I put in, I look back on a lot and say, so, you know, back then that was a challenge. I set a plan, you know, to look at the, the fundamentals of it. I set a plan. Uh, I had goals in mind. Um, you know, I had commitment to it. I stuck to it. I had accountability. I tracked it in notebooks. I still have them. I still, I, I still look through them and just kind of laugh going, man, I would definitely not do that today. 
but uh, but it, you know, and and that's interesting because maybe what what I would do today isn't necessarily good either. And sometimes I think maybe I should go back to what I was doing because it didn't seem to bother me much, right? So um, you know, do we really need to evolve uh, too much? And that's a something I think about a lot of times when it comes to training. But yeah, and and just just taking those lessons. And you know, later on in my college career, for example, it was a struggle mentally. I was frustrated. I was dealing with stuff. I had some issues with the coaching staff and, you know, how do you get through that? Um, and those are things that I, I look to now as, you know, now almost 20 years later, um, and, and look back and say, you know, I've been through this, like, let's see the lessons I've learned from the past and go. And, and that's where I think sports is so beneficial. And that's what I hope my kids get out of sports is, you know, my daughter, um, is doing gymnastics and she's trying to do these skills and, you know, but she's not going to get them if she just does it once a week, right. At class. And so she comes home and she practices and, and I, and I bring that point home to her that, Hey, why are you able to do this? It's because you're practicing. So if you want something, you know, you need to be able to practice to do it. So just keep that in mind. Uh, same thing with some of the Taekwondo stuff. She was struggling with a few of the different forms and, you know, we practiced for like a week in preparation for her, her belt test to make sure she was ready. And, and that to me was so valuable for her to say, Hey, I had one week, I practiced really hard and I did awesome, you know, and she was nervous. And I always had a coach say nervousness was just being not prepared. You know, if you feel nervous, you're just not confident because you're not prepared, right? And and that that holds true so often. You know, not always, but just about so often you feel like that that would be the case. And so that was the case with her. And she went and did awesome. And, you know, the self-esteem at the end of it was just amazing. And so, you know, whether she goes to the Olympics in Taekwondo or she never steps on the mat again, it doesn't matter, right? She's, she went through that and learned those lessons. And those are things that we can refer back to. Uh, you know, as, as time goes on with whatever else she does. We're talking with Roger White. He is a massage therapist, a coach, and a teacher. He's really described a broad-based background to get where he is today. I want to finish up with this part of the interview by asking a question that I think you're probably going to have a very good answer for. Concentrating on a variety of sports, then focusing on track and field and football. And you've already described a couple of times that you're not a, not the biggest guy, but everybody who goes on or many people who go on and play at the collegiate level, at some point they realize I'm not going to go to that next level. So you already were the exception and that you were able to go from high school to play to college. When was it that you realized it's like, okay, this is the end of the line for my football career, my track and field career as far as I'm not going to go any farther and make my living doing this. Yeah. Well, so track ended kind of early. I actually didn't run my senior year, uh, of high school. That's a whole story. I don't, we don't need to get into, uh, I mainly because I was focused on football, right? I just, you know, shared that story about setting the plan. So instead of running track, I just focused on football training on my own, um, which is in a little bit counter to playing a lot of sports. Um, and, and it's a battle I've had to fight, as a coach trying to get kids to run track and not do it. But the, the, you know, so, uh, going into college, my senior year was rough. Um, it was, it was not great. I didn't have statistics. You know, that was the thing. Uh, I came from a smaller school. We did have, uh, some scouts come through that, you know, I had a couple teammates that ended up on some teams and, and made camps and stuff. Um, you know, some were short lived, but they had the opportunity. We had our pro day. We had, you know, f- maybe a dozen, uh, scouts come in, 
and, and time us and that type of thing. And uh, some of the training I did in college wasn't the greatest. I actually got slower over over four years. Um, you know, we did a lot of my last two years was um, a lot of high intensity one set to failure stuff. Um, and that just didn't work. You know, you're doing 30, 100 reps of a leg press. Uh, and it just absolutely killed my speed. Um, and so I almost trained myself out and I did everything they asked me to. I would partner up with the strength coach and, and work out with him because why not? And it probably was the worst thing I could have done looking back. Um, but I didn't know any better and whatever. And, um, so yeah, that, that pretty much ended that, uh, that whole dream. And, and I saw it coming too, you know, I was, I was okay with it. You know, I went and did the best I could in my testing. I was small. I, I barely gained weight in four years. I think I left at 160 pounds. So, and I knew like, unless I was really super fast, there was no chance I was going to end up at an NFL camp. So, um, yeah. And, and so that was it. It was like a, just a gradual process for me. It wasn't like abrupt. I, I know some athletes I've worked with have had different abrupt endings of their careers. Um, and that's a whole thing, you know, and even when I got done, um, the mental, uh, you know, the mental of it, uh, you know, I went through some depression and, you know, I had as a pretty much, I explained my story. I, my whole identity was as an athlete and now I'm done. So what do you do? You know, and that, that was tough. That was a couple of years worth of trying to figure out who I was and what I want to do and, and that type of thing. And so I know a lot of the athletes I see when they're done, uh, you know, I just reach out and just keep, keep tabs on them and, you know, just ask what they're up to and, you know, give advice if they need it or, you know, or just share advice, even if they don't need it, I'll just share it anyway, just say, Hey, like you might need to know this kind of thing. Just, just knowing what I went through, um, to, to try to help them out. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how everything ended. We've been talking with Roger White. He is a teacher, a massage therapist, and has an interesting story. I think he's just described, Probably what many uh, youth athletes should follow as they're growing up and participating in a variety of sports. And I think it's clear that some of the lessons that he learned, whether consciously or unconsciously, he's transmitting to his kids by giving them various opportunities to play and move in a variety of ways. Roger, I want to thank you for joining Moving to Live for part one of the interview. I'm looking forward to coming back in two weeks and talking to you with part two. Yep. Thanks. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.